Hey, Justin. Yes, David. I've come up with a way to save the TV industry. And what is that? A podcast all about TV shows and the people that make them happen. Good. When are we going to start it? Ten seconds ago. This is TV Show and Tell. Welcome back to another episode of TV Show and Tell, the podcast about the ins and the outs, the ups and the downs of the TV industry. I'm David Bodicum. I'm a TV producer and games consultant from London. I'm Justin Scroggy. I'm a television consultant known internationally as the Format Doctor. And today we're going to be continuing our journey in how to pitch TV programs. But our main topic is one that probably generates more heat than light. Can you protect your own TV ideas? And if so, how do you go about doing it? Well, we've been talking to a leading industry expert, Jonathan Code, who will take us on a guided tour of the foothills of intellectual property. But first, while I squeeze into my hiking boots and look for my crampons, what's taking your fancy on the news front, Justin? Well, I've been watching Bridge of Lies on the BBC, uh, which is a new daytime quiz show. Essentially, four friends take on the Bridge of Lies, which is a floor of round stepping stones. They're asked an umbrella question, for example, 21st century words. And then one player must try and step on the stones that have a truth and avoid the stones with a lie, earning money for each correct answer and making their way across the floor. If they step on a lie, then the bridge will automatically halve their prize money. If they step on three lies, then they're out of the game. I actually chipped in a few questions for this. Uh, oh, did you? I worked a whole five days on it. <laughs> <laughs> when I first heard of this, I did think it was a good idea, and uh, a lot of people seem to have liked this. The key thing for me was that it's more of a floor of lies, and I really would have liked it to have been a proper bridge with you yeah. know things that collapse when you stand on the wrong one or things like that. I think one of the things about sets and LCD screens these days is that it's, it's made things very, very easy to use computer graphics for when in the old days you would have had to have physically made like you know, big bits of set that would have slid and um, moved about and so on. Yeah, I agree. It is a bit of a dull uh, set. On the other hand, it is quite rare these days for the set to actually have anything to do with the game. Uh, there are so many generic sets made up of darkness and LED screens. And I do believe that really the set should be part of a format, and at least it is. And the other thing is that sometimes sets are built as part of the format, but they're not designed to actually tell the story on a 16 by 9 screen, which this does. So in that sense, it's well done. And another quiz that came out recently was One in Six Zeros, which uh, is on Channel 4 at 6pm on Sunday, which is mm -hmm. a slightly curious uh, slot. It was uh, presented by Dara O'Brien, and effectively it's a million-pound quiz uh, where either wrong answers or using a, a lifeline of swapping the questions either causes um, zeros to be knocked off the million-pound prize, or, uh, this is the bit that we didn't really see coming, rather than you getting a million-pound coins, you can say... I'd like to swap the question. And instead of getting pound coins, you get 50 pences. And if you swap again, you get 20 pences and 10 pences. So it goes down the uh, the set of coins, which is quite a neat mechanic. Um, Does it suffer from the law of diminishing returns in the sense that as the zeros get knocked off, 
um, the excitement diminishes because there's simply less to win. Well, I think they make sure that the first two questions are relatively easy. Then, of course, if they're not absolutely sure, then it does make sense for them to take a little hit of going from a million down to half a million by taking the lifeline and swapping the question than the risk of losing 90% of the prize in terms of getting a question wrong. So it's sort of self-policing in a a sense. The episodes are self-contained, so you have to really invest in the contestants that they've got because those are the only ones you're going to see for the entire hour. Mm. But I have to say, I I liked it more than I thought I would, given the initial idea, I have to Mm. be honest. Mm. That's good. Well, sticking with the quiz theme bbc studios have announced the distribution of a show uh, from talpa and youngest media called surprise fund that's surprise with a z (laughs) in which basically a member of the public finds themselves in a studio surprise uh, with 15 friends and family now these friends and family have already answered a whole bunch of questions to build up a prize fund every question they've got right is worth money and now the player has got to try and answer the same questions in order to win that cash. But of course, there is a twist. So for every incorrect answer, the player has to eliminate one of the friends or family and lose the amount of money that that person had brought to the surprise fund. And second twist, they don't know which of them earned which money. So they, they could eliminate somebody from the panel of 15 who's actually brought the largest amount of cash to the prize fund is this one where the player is led onto a studio floor and all the lights are dark mm. and then and then like suddenly all the lights go on and then they see all their these correct. family and friends yep. to the left hand side that's correct yeah ah i see okay well yeah i did think that was a neat idea and um it's interesting that they picked that one up yeah now, we don't normally cover the studios and facilities side of television very much, but I had to mention uh, this story. Now, studios in recent years have often chosen to truck in all of their equipment. So you have these large trucks outside and they run all the cables into the studio space rather than upgrading all their own equipment. And there was a company called Arena Television. They used to have a lot of these trucks and associated equipment uh, that they used to drive around from place to place. And uh, it, this uh, company has had to cease trading because what ha- seems to have happened is that they have apparently bought um, an, a load of equipment and uh, used some loans in order to buy the equipment. But one of the people uh, that uh, had funded these loans asked the original equipment manufacturer, oh, by the way, we want to check out about this camera with a serial number XK45. And the equipment manufacturer wrote back saying, we've never made a camera with that serial number before. And they went, oh, really? Because they've taken out a loan against it. Of the £300 million in loans that this company raised, £282 million has no real assets to support those loans. Wow. What appears to have happened is that a whole series of fake certificates and serial numbers have been generated and there's nothing to back up these loans. Uh, the, the two people who are in charge of the company have disappeared, apparently to Europe somewhere, and uh, it's um, all going through the courts as we speak. Well, on a lighter note, I just want to make a brief mention for uh, a new competition format called Blow Up which is all about the inspirational world of balloon artistry. 
I'm not going to explain the rules because you can imagine it. They make works, they get judged, people get eliminated, somebody wins. But I love this line. This format is the ultimate in uplifting, joyful fun. Uplifting, yes, I get it. Uh, yeah. Get it Helium, cool, cool, yeah, cool. very good. <laughs> Our special guest today is a renowned expert in the area of protecting television format rights. Jonathan Code is a PR professional and media lawyer who has dealt with cases involving shows such as I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here and The Great British Bake Off. Let's hear from him now. Okay, our special guest today is a lawyer specialising in media, specifically in intellectual property rights, or IP, and in defamation and privacy. He is Jonathan Code. Welcome, Jonathan. Morning, Justin. Probably the best way to explore legal issues is through real cases about shows and people we've all heard of. Um, so we're going to be talking about stories involving I'm a Celebrity and Survivor, uh, about Bake Off and about the US show Intervention, uh, all cases that uh, you've been directly involved with, Jonathan. But let's start with the basics. So what are intellectual property rights and how how do they relate to television shows? Well, going back, the purpose of copyright was to provide food and drink uh, at sustenance for creatives. If they, if these folk can't earn income from their sweat, the sweat of their brow, then then we all suffer. Of course, the law of copyright has to be adaptable, and one of the problems it faced with reality television programs is that, it, that reality formats, as we call them, don't naturally fit into the law of copyright as has been understood for, for years and years and years. So those of us who, who act in the industry have sometimes had to be creative and try and find uh, uh, slightly oblique ways to protect intellectual property, which we all as an industry recognise, everybody knows that a television format is a saleable item, has to be protectable. So it ought to be protectable and therefore the law should uh, allow those creatives to protect it. And it's, it's our job as lawyers to find ways of doing that. But there's a weird uh, little dichotomy here, I think, which is that essentially, let's say a, a, a TV show is a set of rules and artistic choices, let's say. Um, if if it was a board game, then that in itself is not copyrightable. The design of it might be, but the rules of the board game aren't. Uh, the, the rules will be a literary work. Uh, and the literary work exists as its own species of copyright. There are various species of copyright, and you know the rules to monopoly, which you you get when you buy the box, is absolutely a literary work. Uh, copyright also recognises something called dramatic work, which is essentially a, um, a species of creativity which uh, it, it has a repeated form. A, a dance can be a, a dramatic work. A repeating form of a TV format, even if it's a reality format with what we, what us old guys used to call a script, is nonetheless something which has a structure to it. It has, in a sense, its own set of rules. When I do format right works, intellectual property disputes, I break the format down into a chronological order of events. Now, those, as you TV guys know, are very, very carefully thought out. And they're honed, you know, they, 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 they do dry runs and, and they work incredibly hard to get them absolutely right. 
Now, the courts have, have now long been able to recognise this as a dramatic work. And that has been the means whereby copyright has protected format rights. So the second way you can do it is by the ancient trade uh, claim of passing off. And this is where one trader uh, presents, used to be in the form one trader presenting his goods in a way which made all the prospective buyers thinking, oh, that's someone else's trader's books. That other person trader makes really great goods. So I'm going to buy them. And they've been misled into thinking that these goods are made by a good trader. Now, in some format right cases, uh, there is a passing off element to the claim. And it's said that the person watching this TV program actually think it's the product of some brilliant uh, format device or brilliant production company. Uh, And in fact, they're misled uh, in this because, in fact, this is some upstart and this is a sort of pale imitation. The third way, which is which um, is the most effective way when pitches are stolen. Now, you know, you, you, Justin, you, David, may well have had that happen to you. I could, you know, don't know how many clients have come to me in the, in the same situation. So this is how the what the court says in a situation where A is pitching to B. So typically it'll be a format divisor to a to a broadcaster or sorry to a to an independent production company or an independent production company to a broadcaster. Then the court says that that is a situation where it will imply a duty of confidentiality. And that has good authority in a case called Fraser and Thames Television, which I'll come back to. This was a case about a TV uh, program called Rock Follies, which uh, sadly, Justin, David and I will all be old enough to remember. <laughs> um, and what happened in that case was the, that a chap called Mr. Fraser pitched the Rock Follies idea to Thames Television as, as, as it then was. Uh, and uh, Thames uh, decided they weren't going to... Uh, take the program on that when went and produced the program anyway and the court said no they can't do that now in fact the court said that even if there hadn't been a non-disclosure agreement then Fraser and the girls would still have won but in fact there was a non-disclosure agreement because there was an option agreement I think for 500 quid which included a non-disclosure clause and uh, and Fraser and, and the three girls who were in the show uh, succeeded so Breach confidence is 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 the most powerful in the sense that it pr- protects an idea. Now we all know that copyright doesn't protect an idea. We all well, we, we all probably know that passing off doesn't protect an idea, but co- but breach confidence does. Now, of course, it doesn't work once confidentiality in the program has been lost. So you cannot sue in breach of confidence where your program has been aired. And then it pops up somewhere else. But where it hasn't, then breach confidence is your strongest card. Okay, so let's let's move on to some specific cases. So I'm a celebrity, get me out of here, and Survivor. And my understanding is that in this case, CBS in America claimed that ABC's I'm a Celebrity was a clone of Survivor, uh, which they own the right to produce in the US. So tell us about the case and, and how that played out. In America, CBS who'd had fantastic success with Survivor. I don't know how many seasons it's now in, but it was one of their biggest um, sort of jewels in their crown. They took on ABC, who was the licensee of Granada Oblique ITV, who made the programme initially with with Anton Deck, 
And uh, the UK incarnation of the case was fought between the production company Castaway, uh, which was Bob Geldof's company uh, and uh, who made Survivor in the UK and my client ITV in Granada. In fact, because we were ahead for quite a lot of weeks, I was running the UK case during the day and the US case in the evening. So <laughs> my little team had a lot of pizza that time and an awful lot of fun. It was just magnificent fun piece of work. So you, you were representing I'm a Celebrity. I was, I was representing, I, I was defending the claim. Thank you, Justin, yeah. if I didn't make that clear. And I was defending, I was working very closely with the US lawyers, in fact, doing most of their work. And it was a very scary case for me. I don't want to make this all about me, but it, 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 <laughs> it, it does, il- does illustrate a point which I made earlier about, about how difficult this area of law is. Now, it happened that I was the fighting lawyer for ITV at the time. I'd done various pieces of work for mainly defamation and privacy. So it landed on my desk. And um, at the time, there was very, very little authority, either in the UK or anywhere else, about the protection formats. I think it was 2002 that the case started. But all there really was was the Huey Green case, uh, which had failed. It was his attempt in New Zealand to protect the format of, of uh, Opportunity Knox. And the general view was that format rights uh, were unprotectable. But m- my own view was that there was plenty of difference between the two formats. And that, that uh, when I was asked to advise, so the claim letter came in and I was asked by the top brass at Granada to advise whether this was a, a claim that they could see off, i.e., was this a program they should transmit? Now, the temptation was to say, no, you obviously can't transmit. No, no, it's, you know, you, you're going to lose because then no one was going to come and bite my bum or sue me because uh, I got it wrong. But I, I, my strong view that was that it was a different show. And so I wrote advice saying it's a different show and you should go ahead with it. And this was, they got, about 200 people out in the Australian bush. I mean, it was costing them about £10,000 an hour. And so it was a really big decision. And then, of course, uh, they did sue, both in the UK and the US. So I'm thinking, I really hope I'm right about this. (laughs) Fortunately, we won both sides of the Atlantic. The basis on which you won was that the, the shows were different. How did you prove that they were different? Now, the way we did it was to micro, well, micro analyze, to, to very closely analyze the two programs and essentially provide a, a series of comparisons either side about how, how the structure of the program was. Going to David's point, a little bit like, like the rules, i.e. the rules of how to make the, the, the program. Now, we know that there's such a thing as a format Bible, which is in a sense is you know, how, to, how to build your own TV format. And we, we, we engaged in an in, in enormous amount of close analysis and it, it, the most important judgment is the U.S. lady judge. And she absolutely accepted our analysis that the two programs are fundamentally different. What Survivor was saying is all you've really done is you've taken our program, you've, you've populated with celebrities, and there's no real difference. Now, we haven't got enough time for me to explain all the reasons why that was wrong, but we persuaded the U.S. court of that. And because we had a spectacular win in the U.S., Within a few weeks, uh, the claim was abandoned in the UK, and I, I'm not allowed to tell you exactly what happened, but a very large case of very nice champagne arrived in my office at the end. <laughs> you can draw your own conclusion about how the UK case went. 
Excellent. And did that case set any precedent for future format cases? The thing about reality formats is, is, you know, you gather a load of celebrities together, whatever. You put them in a situation, you fill the studio or the jungle with, with mics and lights, and you edit and broadcast the result. Now, the most extreme example is Big Brother. Now, if you can protect Big Brother, which you can, it's been successfully protected all over the world and, you know, licensed for gazillions of pounds. If you can protect that then you can protect, you know, a format which has a, a more obvious structure to it. So, um, you, you know, you, so the lessons should be, and I think, you know, it was cited, I certainly cited the judgment, um, that made it clear that reality formats were something which the court would recognise and protect. Okay, so let's move on to uh, another, from one blockbuster to another, to the Great British Bake Off. Now, my understanding that the issue here was that the BBC were infringing the owner of Bake Off's copyright by commissioning an in-house format on a different theme, um, hair, I think it was, um, but that followed a very, very similar structure. And that not only led to a case, but probably led to the departure of Bake Off from the BBC. Justin, as as Again, your intel is immaculate. <laughs> um, so Love Productions, which was my clients, discovered that the BBC, you're absolutely right, had commissioned in-house a, a format uh, which about hair, and I, it's completely gone, the, the name of, of the, the programme. But um, in, I uh, thought it was actually called Hair! Exclamation mark. I think it I, may I, have been. I think <laughs> it may have been. But to all intents and purposes... I mean, virtually identical to Great British Bake Off. And again, going back to David's point, the rules. So apart from the subject matter being different, they lifted the, the format block, stock and barrel. Now, there were, there, were, there were a number of ugly things about this. One, of course, is that, you know, that the, there was a close working relationship between Love and BBC. Love had obviously shown them the crown jewels. They, they'd got the format bible you know they, they'd been able to observe how brilliantly love productions are made this so they they had the insight view and then they had the temerity because uh, it was pardon me like the bloody outrageous thing to do but temerity just to lift the format and make their own in-house program now, unsurprisingly love productions were apoplectic about this as as they were perfectly entitled to be and i was i was sent in um to uh beat up the BBC, which I did both on copyright and breach of confidence terms. And uh, it was a complete win for Love Productions, which incidentally shows that, um, you know, a, another evidence that you, you absolutely can protect reality formats. And although it never went to court, um, the, the, it wouldn't go to court because the BBC backed down and everything that we wanted. I mean, it was 100% total win. For love productions and um, hopefully the, the BBC uh, learned a lesson because of course the outrageous thing of course is as I said to them you know you go around the world protecting your um, Strictly Come Dancing format and here you are nicking a format from one of the one of your co-producers I mean it's outrageous anyway but it, now that there's a whole sub-genre of great British skill shows that have three rounds and that have eliminations and are very, very similar in the, in the same way of, of Great British Bake Off. Why are Love Productions not putting a stop on all of these other ones? Two things, I think. I mean, one is, for all we know, they may have all taken a license from Love Productions. Um, mm. uh, and given the ferocity with which 
uh, Love Productions protected their format. I wouldn't have thought that's at all surprising. I, I mean, well, the great anything Great British probably would face a, a, a passing off claim for the reasons I've explained. So even if there's not a copyright claim, there may well be a passing off claim because everything that starts with Great British, like Britain's Got Talent or whatever, now will be associated with that Love Production. And I think Great Great British uh, throw, pottery throwdown is made by Love Productions. Well, well, I I, I would, would be surprised if it wasn't. Uh, mm. You know, I'm delighted about that. The only school prize I ever won was pottery, and they've <laughs> never thrown a pot. It's just the most wonderful thing. But my own view is that 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 format theft is is short termism. You know, I think you know uh, there there are good ethical reasons, uh, but also good commercial reasons for re- respecting intellectual property. So I think you find with a lot of talent shows, for example, that they're also using trademark to protect things like uh, the sonics of the buzzer yep. or the X's above the stage um, or the colour of this, even Pantone references and so on. Is that something that you get involved with? So what what is a trademark? A trademark is something which effectively upgrades the protection of intellectual property. You can't, you wouldn't be able to upgrade the the buzzer, um, you, the X is um, you can you could certainly trademark the the X of the X factor. Yeah, absolutely. So certainly, a good in-house lawyer at a uh, production company or a broadcaster is going to look at every possible way. And if there is, you're quite right. If there is a clearly recognisable icon like the X of X factor, then. Absolutely. I mean, trademark is not very expensive. Getting a community mark is not very expensive. Uh, it can be done reasonably quickly. And uh, it, it's, a, it's a very easy way. I mean, you don't need, you know, if, if, if a rival show uses the X, then you don't have to bother any sophisticated um, arguments about passing off or copyright. Bang, our trademark, off it goes. So it's, it's very much something you should consider, Justin. That's absolutely right. Now, I was always told that um, titles were not copyrightable, um, but I know that you were involved uh, with the A&E show Intervention and whether they had some sort of exclusive right to use that name. There is a psychological technique I expect most people know about, but I think it's important that everybody does, called Intervention. So let's say, Justin, your Mars bar addiction uh, becomes something unmanageable, and you, you're up from four miles bars a day to you know to 24 miles bars a day, um, and your family and good friends and David get get you into a into a room and say, Justin, you know you you've been reduced to a, a a shadow of a man through this. You know, shoplifting miles bars is not dignified for a man of your age. You know, it's time to get get sorted out. Now that is called an intervention, and o- often it's done with. Uh, the assistance of a psychological expert. I think I think Elton John's had one, for example. So my client, Channel 4, made a documentary about intervention some, uh, um, some years ago. And then what happened was that A&E uh, made a, a series of programmes, a documentary about interventions, all sorts of areas, um, gambling ad- addiction, drug addiction, alcoholism, uh, alcohol addiction. Anyway... My client revived the idea of making a program about intervention. And we got this extraordinary letter in from A&E Television saying, we, by making intervention, um, have acquired an exclusive right to use the term intervention uh, for the making of television programs. To which we say, 
absolutely not. You know, it's like saying that the first production company that makes a documentary about tsunamis can stop everybody else who makes a documentary about tsunamis using tsunami in the title. I mean, no. No, intervention is an existing term. It's not a made-up term by a production company. It's an existing term to describe a medical process. So I wrote back to A&E and said, you know, you're wrong for every imaginable amount of reasons. You know, don't do this. They issued proceedings, though, and again, I explained that, you know, you cannot possibly win this case. You're wrong for all of these reasons. And it went all the way to trial. And they they went down, you know, not just one nil at trial, but, you know, five nil. They absolutely got plastered by the judge every single point. Very briefly, what would be your sort of top five rules for protecting uh, your intellectual property? That's a really good question, Justin. I'm really glad you asked it because I am passionate about this. So um, the first is that you need to try and as best you can keep a record of how you create any form of intellectual property. Well, let's let's concentrate on TV formats because I think I can be, be more precise in my answer. So all the process, of course, there'll be iterations, there'll be emails, there'll be scripts, there'll be um, design plans. Keep them all carefully. And then once the, you know, as, as things go, keep them in one place. Now, one of the reasons why I was aiming at it, I was able to win, I'm sorry to get me out of here, is that after an enormous amount of effort, I managed to put together the whole process whereby ITV made the programme. And one of the reasons why we won it, well, two reasons we won it, one, because it was different, but also we persuaded the, the judge that ours was, a, was an independent process of creation. So one, keep careful records. Two, absolutely essential that everyone who gets involved with the, with the creative process signs a piece of paper which deals with issues of confidentiality and copyright. So three, be careful who you get into bed with, because you cannot make television programmes without a degree of trust. However many lawyers you employ, however many bits of paper, you know, in the end, the glue that should help hold it together is, is a common shared set of ethics. So be careful who you get into bed with. Thirdly. Fourthly. Thank you. Forgive me. Counting, I'm a lawyer. Counting never was my strong point. There comes a point where your little um, baby needs to go out and and be exposed to the to the open. It's almost like you know, with your parent, the first time you take it to school, you, you think, poor little thing. And you know, when you air your idea, there are companies who are no, you know, production companies and broadcasters who are notorious for disrespecting intellectual property. Try and avoid them. But even then, you know, you need to go and try and create a paper trail. Most companies will not sign a non-disclosure agreement for all sorts of reasons. Their lawyers are going to say, don't sign it. So you're almost certainly not going to get that. But what you can do is to send in the covering letter. Look, thank you so much for inviting us to a meeting, you know, at, at Channel 4 on the 25th of March. Um, this is what we're going to be pitching. You'll understand that it, 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 at the moment it's highly confidential. You're the first people that we're showing it to. And therefore, it's very, very important that you treat this as confidential, that, 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 it's, you know, that it's not disclosed outside the, the, the circle of the people who actually need to see it. Now, no judge is going to have any problem in those circumstances in a, a, obliging, well, imposing a duty of confidence. Probably even if you don't do that, you'll probably be OK. But it's much better 
to, to, to bulk that up if, if possible. You've already made an important point, um, just in trademark, you know, where, where, wherever. But in America, you can register copyright, you can't in the UK. Um, as I say, this is all question of four. You can register formats, uh, with Frapper. So, you know, make every possible, um, take every possible precaution you can to protect it. It really, really can make the difference as to whether, you know, someone like me can help you or not. So finally, I think we're on number five. Five, Justin, you'll correct me if I'm wrong. Now, the problem is that intellectual property is going to devalue. It's going to be unlicensable unless it's protected. I mean, nobody is going to be very impressed if they spend a vast amount of money on a license for a TV program for, for a territory. And then two weeks before they air, a copycat gets transmitted. And you say, oh, nothing to me to do with me, Gov. You know, you bought it. It's your problem. Well, how likely is it they're going to buy another format of right after you? So you've got to do as much as you can to police this intellectual property because you don't. It'll just fade away. Now we're going to return to our series on how to pitch ideas. And it's episode two, how to prepare for the pitch. What practical steps do you need to take to maximize your chance of success? And what psychological tricks can you use to get your own mind into the right space? So Justin, you finally got a hot contact. You've finally managed to nail down a slot. You've been waiting weeks or months for this pitch meeting to happen. So what are the steps we need to take to make sure we don't screw it up? What you're pitching is a format. And what you need to do is to be able to describe that format in the neatest possible way. So by now, you should have a treatment where you've worked up that format into a, into a document. What you need to draw out of that document is a single sentence that you can describe it in, a tagline, obviously have a killer title that we discussed before, um, and a good description of, of an episode. So that's part of what you should have in your tool bag. You also need to have a think about why you, because that's a big question that's going to be in the minds of the people that you're pitching to. What is your track record? What have you made before? If you haven't made something before, who are you going to bring to the meeting that gives you some credibility? If you can't sell yourself, it's very, very hard to sell your idea. Because that's one complaint that some producers have had in that they often come and pitch an idea that they feel was a good idea. And then they find that a slightly similar idea has been made by one of their rivals. And that the implication is that they've put the initial idea in the, in the commissioner's head and by one means or another the commissioners felt that the idea wasn't right for you but when somebody else has come with a similar idea that, that they've they've managed to get the idea over the line yeah i mean ultimately you've got to deliver it and you know most formats when you go into production are going to cost millions of pounds and if someone's going to trust you with that amount of money they want to know that you're going to spend it wisely that you're going to come in on time and that you're going to deliver the show that you promised and inevitably that's going to fall to companies that have got a track record for doing it. So as somebody with an idea, you've either got to align yourself with one of those companies in advance, or you've got to at least align yourself with a with a producer or, or somebody who's going to provide that assurance. 
So let's say we've got our one or two page summary in our heads mm-hmm. and we're ready to get that across. Is there anything else that you recommend we do? Yeah. So another thing to think about is why now? You know, timing is everything. I remember going when I was when we were making Chef in Your Ear the first time around, having a quiet moment with the commissioning editor from the uh, Food Network Canada. And she turned to me and she said, you know, Justin, broadcasters turn down good ideas every day this time you won mm-hmm. which was quite chilling actually at the time <laughs> um, but the point she was making was that our idea had landed on her desk at the right moment in the right cycle um, in the right context uh, of the of the network at the time uh, and that was a key reason so really have a think about not just why this show but why now what how is it connected to the zeitgeist how does it reflect society how does it tag along with a trend or something that's happening at the moment one of the things that i feel like more pitches fail than they should is because of the basics in terms of do they have a slot for this show and like, can you find that out in advance? Yeah. Because you're just going to save a whole lot of disappointment and hard work. Yeah, absolutely. I had an idea in with a company and they spent a surprisingly long time warming up the commissioner saying, we've got this great idea for a new quiz. And they went, oh, that's interesting. And look forward to talking to you in a couple of months about it. And then the meeting came along and they pitched it. And then the commissioner just went, yeah, it's a good idea, but we don't have a slot for a quiz. Mm. And that was it. You, the, yeah. the idea was dead. It yeah. doesn't matter the fact that the quiz was utterly brilliant, in my opinion. The <laughs> fact is that the, the current slots that they had for that type of quiz were already full with legacy programming, and they didn't have room for it. Yeah. I mean, gathering your intelligence in advance is absolutely essential. You need to know the channel. You know, what kind of shows do they make? What kind of audiences do they attract? What's the ethos? What's the, what's the brand message of the channel? You need to know your individual buyer. What do they like? What do they dislike? What have they made before? Where did they come from? You need to know when you're going to pitch uh, during the day as well, because that can have an impact. Uh, If you get sort of four o'clock on a Friday, then you kind of know you're not very important in the scheme of things. Directly after lunch isn't great either. You need to know who's going to be there. This is something that I always do. As soon as I've got a pitch, the next question I write to the PA is please let me know who is going to be in the meeting because you think you're going to go in and talk to one person. You walk in, there are five, or you think there are going to be five and there's one, or you think it's going to be the decision maker and actually it's their deputy or their deputy's deputy. I also like, if possible, to see the environment I'm going to be pitching in because seeing the room or at least having some idea of the room in advance is a psychological uh, advantage. And if you are trying to do some sort of little demo, let's say, you know, can you get into the room half an hour early to set up yep. and like, you know, find out where all the power sockets are and, yeah. and like, do you, you know, do you have enough chairs? Do you have, do you have room to show what you want to show? I know. I mean, these days you go into broadcast, you have to sit in a goldfish bowl with no soundproofing and lots of noise going on around you. And it's not what you imagined. I always bring my own equipment. I never, ever rely on the equipment because you get into the room, which has been booked, some generic room that's been booked. Nobody can find half the remote controls. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, the commission editor doesn't seem to actually know how a television operates. And you could spend you know, the first 15 minutes of your pitch just trying to sort it out. So ideally, take your own kit. Um, you need to decide who to take. I mean, that's another really critical thing. Who goes to the pitch? 
you know, if you've got a creative who's come up with the show, obviously for the most part, they're going to be the best person to describe the show because they're the most passionate about it. And you need to therefore, you know, decide all your roles and things like that. You know, do you take the talent? If you've got some talent attached to the show, do you take that person with you? Because maybe that's great because you've got a star. Maybe this is not a star the broadcaster wants and you've killed the pitch already. It's okay. How do you get yourself into the right mind space in order to pitch? Ooh, psychology, yes. <clears throat> well, I think the first thing, and it sounds really obvious, is that you have to believe in your show. Very, very few shows that get pitched get made. It's about the transfer of enthusiasm in the end. If you don't believe it, if you're not excited about it, then why would that person be? And it really does change the sale in the room if you're really passionate and enthusiastic about the format. Secondly, you've got to remember that you're selling something that doesn't exist. It's quite unique, really. Even films, movies, you know, you, you've got a script. But for most television formats, you don't have anything. So you've got to think about how psychologically you're going to create that show in the room. My business partner, Michelle Rodrigue, always talks about getting them to run the film of the format in their heads. And again, this can be quite important when you're talking to different buyers because you don't know how much money they've got to spend, what channel they're going to put it on, what slot it's going to go into. So if you're too specific about how you describe the show, you might be limiting. I remember describing a car show to a broadcaster in the Czech Republic, as it then was. And I was chuntering away. And I was assuming that this was basically kind of a, an arena, almost studio type show. And then we got chatting and I realized that he saw it, these cars driving around on ice covered roads in the mountains and the film that had been running in his head was completely different to the film running in mine. Huh. Luckily, I managed to cover up my surprise. <laughs> I think my top tip is plan for the worst case scenario. Mm. Because I've just seen scenarios where you think you're going to go in at two o'clock as designed. The commission is going to come in, sit down and listen for an hour. And then they'll say, all right, thanks very much. We'll let you know. And they'll walk out again. Never happens. I've seen people be an hour and a half late. I've seen people turn up with completely different commissioners to what was planned. You just need to have plan B and a plan C. So like, if there's not time to play the game, do you reschedule? Do you just give a, a, like a 10-minute shortened version? If we don't get the time that we were promised, mm. then what things do we need to do to rectify that? Well, I think that takes us in a perfect uh, circle, full circle back to what I said at the beginning, which is about your paper format. If in your paper format you've created a treatment which has got all the detail that you need, you've got your one sentence, you've got your tagline, you've got your short description, your slightly longer description, whatever, then you should be able to be that nimble if your half an hour pitch becomes a 10 minute pitch, or if they suddenly say we've got an hour and lean back, um, that you you can use that material in whatever way that you want to at that, at that point. Mm -hmm. And remember that viewers are going to decide whether to watch your program based on half a glance at a listing somewhere. So if you can't get your show across in a few minutes anyway, then there's probably something wrong with it. Okay, so next time when we get back to this topic, we'll talk about actually going into the room and what happens in the room. But that's, that's our little summary about how you get to the door. 
Now it's time to return to our exclusive chat with media lawyer Jonathan Code. Here, Jonathan explains Crisis PR, where he provides support to the rich and famous when under pressure from the media. So, Jonathan, in your crisis PR stroke defamation and privacy work, um, you represented celebrities as diverse as, and I'm going to take a big breath here, Heston Blumenthal, Lady Gaga, Amy Winehouse, Eminem, Victoria Beckham, Talisa from The X Factor, Jerry Halliwell, Girls Aloud, Holly Willoughby, Philip Schofield, Martine McCutcheon, Emily Atak, Caroline Flack, Paul McKenna, Denise Van Outen, Noel Edmonds, and Anton Deck. I'm a, I'm a devout Christian. I believe all the work that comes to me, I should be grateful for. Uh, it, it is a real privilege to do their work, and some of them uh, I've got to know a bit. Paul McKenna has become a, a good friend. So, oh, this is hypnotised you to think that he's a good friend. <laughs> exactly what I was going through my mind. Yeah. Well, so so I I I know Paul wouldn't mind. Um, this, this Annie, he's an absolutely lovely guy and thinks an awful lot. A really interesting man, a good man too. Does an awful lot of free work um, with, um, for, particularly for ex-servicemen suffering from PTSD. So he's a thoroughly good bloke. Anyway, he got sued once, and you, you may remember this very big news at the time by a guy who come on when he used to do stage shows. A guy came on stage, was hypnotised by Paul, and claimed that as a result of being hypnotised by Paul, he became schizophrenic. Now, knowing the science, it was about as likely that eating a can of beans was going to make you schizophrenic as being hypnotized by Paul. But anyway, unfortunately, he got legal aid. This all went way to, to trial. I have to say Paul won at a canter. But at the, at the, at the pre-trial conference with the QC, there was Paul and the, the, the junior on either side of the QC. And the QC said, look, Paul, I, I really want to understand what it is you do. So would you mind hypnotizing my junior barrister. <laughs> um, whilst those cases weren't necessarily related to the their TV shows, the TV stars that you've represented, what do you think it is about fame that makes them particularly vulnerable? And secondly, what can they do to manage their risks? The thing is that celebrities cover a very, very wide range of folk. You know, so one of my clients, Holly Willoughby, apart from you know, being completely stunning, is as sharp as a tap. That lady is no fool. And at the other end of the scale, you know, I've acted for elite sportsmen who, who are pretty well functionally illiterate. And, and so, you know, take a football. I mean, I'm currently acting for a, a footballer from, a, from an African country. He's now earning 50, 60 grand a week. You know, he's surrounded by crook shysters, leeches, and, of course, young ladies throw themselves at him, and particularly with a view getting pregnant. So they attract, you know, the wrong kind of crowd. But also the editors and publishers of newspapers like The Sun, the, news, the, the Sun on Sunday, The Star, The Mirror, The Express, look on these folk like butchers look at pigs you know when can we lay them out on the on the counter in the form of sausages and they make vast sums of money out of them so they you know there there is a huge amount of money to be made both by hangers on and by newspapers to exploit them what can they do 
there are all sorts of things to do. And, I, you know, I've given seminars to, I've even given a seminar to the entire cast of EastEnders. I mean, imagine I was on the EastEnders set, <laughs> surrounded by the EastEnders cast, talking about exactly the, the answer to your question. I felt like an extra doing a program. <laughs> the, the, the most dangerous, of course, is the combination of a mobile phone and a, and a, and a, a nice bottle of Chardonnay. Um, so, you know, teaching them about the dangers, having a good agent, uh, you know, that it really makes a difference having good agents. And there are a lot of bad agents out there, particularly bad sports agents. You know, having a good sports agent is, is really important. And the, I think the other thing is that, you know, when you, the three of us, do something daft, which in my case is you no know, reasonably regularly, um, you know, generally we can just laugh at ourselves or, you know, our children can laugh at us and that's it. But of course, if you do something daft and you're in a, the goldfish bowl celebrity, then it gets magnified. So one of my clients, who is a very well-known TV and film actor, a very good-looking chap, and who lives a colourful life, uh, enjoys uh, recording some of his colourful exploits on his phone, and uh, he then downloads them onto his computer. And an activity which has always mystified me, but a number of my clients seem to enjoy doing it anyway. So he buys himself a really smashing new laptop, decides he doesn't need his old laptop, and advertises his old laptop on eBay. Well, what if you can guess what he doesn't do? <laughs> he doesn't wipe it. So I get a panic call from his agent saying that the guy who's bought this laptop and agent has found, you know, stills and footage on it. So my job was to, you know, solve this, solve this problem. And my advice was, well, you know, we can go the orthodox route, you know, injunctions, all that kind of thing. But since he's contacted us, my guess is that he wants to do the right thing. Um, so I think there's a deal to be done. So I got in touch with this guy, said, look, thank you so much. You contacted us rather than the sun. But this is what I'd like to do. I'd like to offer to buy the laptop back uh, at a very, very healthy profit to you. And here's a piece of paper which where you undertake not to say or do anything about it. Now, the psychology was that he felt he'd been rewarded for his good deeds. And therefore, I, I reasoned that he would comply with it. It was it was a lot cheaper than, you know, going through the legal process. And I'm happy to say that was about 15 years ago and no one has heard about it. So it worked very well. Uh, so, Jonathan, you're going to come back uh, towards the end of the podcast and with an item to show and tell. But for now, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Great stuff from Jonathan there. And in this section of the podcast, I thought we would just talk a little bit about our own experiences of TV protection and rights. A common question that people ask about the TV industry is, are formats actually ripped off? And the honest answer, I think, is yes, but not as often as you think. <laughs> um, I did find one famous case in my archives. Uh, there was the BBC snooker quiz, Big Break, and a court case in 1998 found that that idea had been stolen effectively from a minicab driver called Roger Medcalf. And the Birmingham Post newspaper reported that the courts awarded him uh, £100,000 in damages and a one-third share in income generated by the format. But I think another thing that people need to be aware of is that coincidences happen more often than you might think. 
I can give you an absolutely genuine example. About nine months ago, I was filming something completely different up in Glasgow. And the director of the show took me to one side during lunch and said, Hey, David, I've got this idea for a show. And it's a variety show where we start off as normal and the host comes on. But as we meet the contestants, we start to ask questions about things that have just happened previously and then as more and more things happen we then start to ask questions about those things and so on and effectively it was pretty much identical to i literally just told you the channel four show with jimmy carr now i know for a fact that those two ideas have been generated completely independently yes it's a tricky one that i mean the the idea of providing people with the answers uh, in in some way and then allowing people to try and recall those answers in order to answer questions has been around for a bit. Uh, there's a Turkish format called Catch the Answer, which does a very similar thing where people are shown a, a, a quite a compressed film um, of facts about something and then they've got to try and catch the answers because later on in the show they're going to be asked questions about it. Um, there's an Australian show called Cram that does a similar kind of thing with comedians. I think there was a 1980s show going even further back than that called Hitman. So have you had any experiences of this when you're protecting your own formats, such as Chef in Your Ear, for example? Yes, we did, actually. I think it was the year after the first transmission of Chef in Your Ear in Canada. and We had a very official uh, solicitor's letter from a guy saying that uh, he'd created this show and that we had ripped him off and that we had to cease and desist and all the lawyers got terribly excited. Mm. And so the lawyer representing us asked us if we had uh, documentation to, to prove otherwise. Now, I'm a strong believer, as Jonathan has said, about keeping everything, keeping every single piece of paper. And I had the treatment, the original treatment of the show, the original treatment that I wrote, the hard copy with every single page dated so that I was able to send him pictures of the treatment and say this was written in 2009, which was a year before this other guy had created his show. Mm. And I have to say, I had that lawyer on the phone almost weeping with joy because he said, this <laughs> never happens. No one ever actually has this. I asked for it. I can't believe you've actually got it. We also contacted various commissioning editors that we had pitched the original idea to um, who were happy to confirm by email that they had taken those meetings on those dates and that we'd pitched that show. And the other thing was that he said that he'd presented the show at Real Screen in Washington in 2010, I think it was, or 2011, and that I must have been there and I must have heard it and I must have ripped it off. And again, I was very easily able to demonstrate that I hadn't been at Real Screen uh, and therefore that hadn't happened. Mm. Funnily enough, I also Googled this incredibly scary solicitor's address, which turned out to be under a flyover. Um, somewhere in West Hollywood, which is not a posh address. Uh, anyway, we never heard from him again. On the flip side of it, we also had the show ripped off in other countries. Uh, we had a situation in South Korea. We had a tip-off that the show was literally about to go on air, and we intervened through our distributor. Um, and within a couple of days, we managed, first of all, to get our credit put onto that show, and secondly, they had to pay the license for that series and for a second season, whether they made it or not. So that's how that was resolved. 
So were you able to prove that they had seen or knew of your format? I had been to that broadcasting company. I had lectured to their team on my show. I had shown them clips of it. Mm. Um, so it was absolutely a slam dunk. Right. And thirdly, it was ripped off in China, which again, we only got very short notice of. Um, very difficult with 33 broadcasters in China. And in this instance, we simply couldn't find anyone to serve a decease and desist letter on because there was no production company. It was a bunch of people who were working out of a hotel room somewhere <laughs> and literally are represent. And China is also a very big place. So we literally could not find anywhere to write to or to send a person to. And we couldn't stop it. And it was terrible. And it lasted, I think, five episodes and was pulled off air because they didn't have the Bible and they didn't know how to make the show. But that killed the opportunity for us to pitch the show to any one of 33 broadcasters in China. Once it's gone out and it's been a flop, there's there's nothing you can do. But I thought that in China, and this is for another day probably, but I mm. thought in China they didn't necessarily re recognize copyrights or format rights anymore. Um, that's not entirely true. Um, they do recognize it. Uh, some broadcasters do. Um, the problem is simply that, as I said, with so many national broadcasters who are competing with each other, very often what happens is, is that one of them pays for the license, gets the Bible, uh, gets the flying producer. And before that show has got on air, five other broadcasters <laughs> have done their rip-off version and got it on air. And sometimes because those productions are not limited by the Bible, they're able to alter them slightly to suit the local audience. They do better. <laughs> and also because they do so many episodes, they'll take a format and they'll do a hundred episodes. So that's it. It's It's been and gone. And again, that's it. You're, you're done. I, I know people who've been out to pitch a show in China They've sat in their hotel room, switched on the TV, and before they've gone to the pitch, they've watched their own show on TV. Wow. But yes, it is absolutely true um, that because of because our ideas don't come from nowhere, they come out from trends, they come out from conversations, they come out from other programs and what's on the theatre, what's in the cinema or whatever. It happens time and time again. The very similar shows, ideas emerge at different parts of the world at the same time. Um, and also broadcasters may sit there. If, they, if they've given out a brief that's pretty specific, then they may get five or six or seven shows that are quite similar. Um, I worked on one, I think it was Canada's Smartest Person, where a broadcaster had been pitched two ideas that were quite similar, and he liked an element of both of them. And quite honourably, he got them to go to get together um, and develop a co-production that incorporated the elements that he liked um, mm. and then brought me in to try and smooth the whole thing into a, into a format that worked. Some real-world anecdotes there from the whole issue of format protection. I'm sure that's a topic that we'll come back to in future episodes. And finally, Jonathan Code explains what object he'd like to ban celebrities from using in our show and tell segment. So Jonathan Code is back with us and he's got something to show and tell us. So Jonathan, what is the item that you've got there? I have in my hand one of the most scary things that has emerged since I started doing this work. Now, David, you would not 
believe the amount of trouble which celebrity clients of mine have got into via their mobile phone. Celebrities are, are more accessible now. They could easily just be accessing their Twitter, and if they see something they don't like, they could you know, easily get in an argument with someone and, and, and cause more problems for you. Well, they cause more problems for themselves. You know, I have pulled a number of clients out of fairly deep holes um, when, by a combination of being angry and possibly a couple of glasses of good wine, uh, something most unfortunate has been said online. And, you know, Katie Hopkins, for example, lost her house uh, because of a tweet that she made about a food blogger and a Sally Burko, the wife of the, the, the Speaker of the House of Commons, also lost a great deal of money. But actually, uh, the, the, you, you make the good point that the power that celebrities have via their mobile phones. And, of course, some of them have hundreds of thousands and millions of followers. Now, so let me give you an example of where actually I was able to use a mobile phone to the benefit of a client. Peter Geldof's agent contacted me and said that uh, one of the glossy magazines, I think it was Heat, was going to run a piece uh, suggesting that Peaches had facial surgery, that she'd had a nose job. You know, what could I do about it? I said, look, you know, not very much is the answer. So what they're going to do is they're going to find some hard up plastic surgeon they're going to sit him at a desk and show him you know, 50 pictures of peaches and try and find two that are from different angles where he's able to say, well, you know, speaking as a plastic surgeon, I think she's had a no job, all that kind of thing. And unfortunately, you know, there's, there's not a lot really that I can do about it. So the agent said, OK, well, thanks ever so much. I'll pass that on to peaches. About 15 minutes later, he rang up, and said, look, she's really apoplectic about this. She really, really wants to have a have a go. You know, is there anything you can think of? I said, well, actually, I've had time to think about this. Am I right that Peaches has a six-figure number of Twitter followers? He said, yes, she does. Right. Okay, so this is what we're going to do. I'll get in touch with the magazine, and I'm going to say, so the first thing we're going to do, oh, Heat magazine. I think it was Heat magazine. We're going to we're going to spike that story uh, because you go out weekly. Peaches can tweet like that. So we're going to spike the story so it's of no value to you because it's done. So the second thing we're going to do is we're going to ridicule the story because Peaches is going to say, "How likely is this? I get packed every day. If I've been." Uh, had surgery it would show up in the pack pictures and also i'm pregnant so i'm not going to be able to have surgery because i'm pregnant so the third thing that we're going to do is that if then the story comes out that'll be defamatory of peaches by innuendo because it'll be suggesting that peaches own denials of having plastic surgery are untrue so then we're going to sue you so we're going to do all three of those things unless you drop the story which is what they did. That's very good. A, a salutary tale of uh, the benefit of having a large following. Yes. Um, so uh, anyway, Jonathan, thank you very much for that uh, show and tell. You're really welcome. All right, it's Faker Format time. This week, Justin's got two formats to describe, but one of them isn't real, and it's my job to spot the fake one. Okay, so off you go. Okay, so my first format is called I Pity the Fool. 
I pity the fool. And, and let me guess, let me guess. It's with Mr. T. It is with Mr. T. You're quite right, Mr. T from the A-Team. Um, Mr. T uh, basically travels around the country from town to town, uh, giving advice and solving problems and teaching individuals some basic life rules. <laughs> um, so this phrase comes from Rocky Three, uh, where he played the character James Clubber Lang. Um, so, for example, he goes out to a, a family farm um, and he helps the parents with their four rough teenage sons um, to teach them some respect um, and things like that. Right. So that's I Pity the Fool. Uh, it was a reality competition series. Okay. Mm -hmm. Second one is called This Way Up. And this is with Mike Tyson. So this is Mike Tyson offering four kids from the ghetto a way out or a way up hence the title um, there are four ways up which is music dance basketball and boxing and so he has recruited a friend or a star from each of those disciplines they go undercover and they try to find four kids um, to, that they're going to mentor um, they come and live in mike's house um, and they have to follow the house rules but if they follow the house rules and they do what they're told, then um, they can get to the prize at the end of the rainbow. Right. So we've got Mr. T and Mike Tyson. I pity mm. the fool and this way up. But which is the fake and which is the format? I was like 90% certain the Mr. T one was fake because I'm sure I would have heard of it. Because of just the t just because of the title alone, that would have gone viral on on the internet. But um, you then started to give uh, like an example of what was happening, and then that made me sort of think, ah, that does sound quite realistic now. But then the Mike Tyson one's got a lot. Of, he had a lot of detail on that as well. Um, I don't really understand why basketball would be in there. He doesn't strike me as a basketball person, but. I'm going to say that the real one is this way up. And you're wrong. Yay. Oh, you've done it. Finally. <laughs> I've broken the duck. What a relief. Um, yes, uh, I Pitied the Fool was a, a, a real reality series with Mr. T, uh, exactly as I described. Mm. Um, but you're right, This Way Up had a lot of detail because this was a show that I was involved in developing with Mike Tyson ah. some years ago. So that is what we were trying to do. The whole idea really came about trying to do an, an antidote to The Apprentice. They're saying, how would you do The Apprentice but in a street way? And so that was that was the premise, and uh, Mike Tyson was on board at the time. Mm. Um, but however, it didn't come to fruition. Uh, there you go, uh, commissioners. There's a, a a format ready to be <laughs> sold. Um, contact Jay Scroggy at. This was the pitch. Absolutely, this is the re the re pitch. You know, <laughs> excellent. Well, there we are. That's your lot for this week. Uh, you can keep up with the latest news via our Twitter account at TV Show Podcast. And if you've got any feedback or questions, then you're welcome to contact us on our email. It's contact at tvshowandtell.com. Until next time, I've been David Bodicum. And I've been Justin Scrookie. And this has been TV Show and Tell. <laughs>